te rā te whetu, kapo kapo ana mai ko mere mere anō. E te iwi nau mai hoki mai anō ki te ahikā, ko mraia rakuraku māua ko... Tānata tūta tēnei. Kia ora tātou katoa. This is Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand's weekly Māori Features programme. E haere ake nei. At the end of last week's show, we asked you if you knew which member of Flight of the Concords duo has Māori whakapapa. Well, this week we reveal who... It's Jermaine Clement. Tanito, shh! Oh, gee, big surprise. I mean, look at the man. And because it's Tanudo's last show, before he sells out, oh, I mean goes to TVNZ, he wanted to hear his favourite piece featuring his favourite person, himself. It's actually a profile of the band Herbs, which had a huge hit with our unofficial anthem, Slice of Heaven. But first, Paul Moon. Following on from our interview on last week's programme, we hear more about what drew the Parkia scholar to a small rural-based community and a tūhoi man. But more specifically, the influence of the 19th century prophet Rua Kinana and the community of Maunga Pohatu upon Hohepa Kiriopa. This was an issue that popped up actually the first day we met. I remember we started talking about Rua Kinana and, and everything that he had, he had tried to achieve. And in the years that followed, when Hohepa and I worked on the other two books, always at the back of my mind there was this issue that there's a whole side of what we talked about that never entered into the first two books. Um, and I was very careful. I didn't want the books to become dumping grounds for information where there's just a, a massive download of, of stuff in, in any order that's pointless. So I was very careful to edit and prune back the books so that they're, they're very relevant. Now, as a result of that pruning, there was always, and when I looked at what was, what was left over, there's always this constant strand about religion and about the the very the spiritual side of what, Tonga uh, generally do, and what Hoep in particular was involved with, and I, I knew that had to be, if you like, the final chapter in the, in, in the whole series. That the final book had to be about that. But I didn't do anything about it. I was busy on another book, and that's when I got the call that Hoep was sick, and that's when I went to visit him in hospital, and that's when we started talking about this. And I, I knew that the clock was ticking. I knew that. It was probably a matter of months, hopefully a year, but it turned out to be a matter of six, seven months that um, he passed away. So I knew I had to drop everything and just focus fully on this. And the reason was to get a sense of a particular branch of, of, of religion that, that's developed in the area, the Eherara religion, which is led by and founded by Ura Kenana. It's an offshoot of Rangatū. And to get a, a, sort of the last glimpse as to what that religion was really about, because Hoepa was the last person, really, who was extremely familiar with all its tenets, who knew what its basis was and what its purpose was. And so I, I really sort of drilled deep into his mind as, as much as I could to get as much information out about it. Mauna Pohatsu, what were your observations of there? Well, the last time I'd been there was about, oh gosh, over 30 years ago, so... Um, and I'd actually driven past it, gone to Waikato Moana. I hadn't actually gone to the mountain, but um, it's yeah. I think it's the longest stretch of stretch of unsealed road in the country, and <laughs> you know, driving around is probably the one with the most bends in it as well. So um, I've, I've hired a four-wheel drive vehicle because a lot of it is four-wheel drive track heading towards the mountain, and uh, I was very fortunate. What I did beforehand is obviously I talked to Hope a lot about it. He was too sick to travel with me by this stage. Um, 
these in the final months of his life. And uh, But in addition to talking to him about it, I made a point, I spent a good few months beforehand going through old newspapers looking for references and articles about them, about the place around the turn of the 20th century, roughly from about the 1890s through to about 1920, 1930, around there. So I had this, this pile of newspaper clippings with me. I'd photocopied them and in some cases typed down bits and pieces. And so I was able to travel through there and refer back to these newspaper clippings. And so that gave a sort of added historical dimension to the trip. So did you know that Te Awe was a mokopuna from Rurokenana? Yes, that's one of the things um, I found out fairly early on. I also met um, one of Rua's daughters who was still alive. Uh, that was, I think, 2003. And, um, of course, he had several wives and numerous children and even more numerous grandchildren. But, um, yeah, and that, that provided another interesting link between the two, the fact that Hoipa was married to one of Rua's granddaughters. Which I guess he would have explained as nothing was, nothing's ever coincidental. Well, that's right. Everything's there for a reason. And... I mean, that's a very easy claim to make. You can say that about anything. But when you start to piece together things, there, there were so many coincidences that lined up that it seemed that almost it, was, it wasn't a coincidence. So prior to the time that you'd started investigating more and learning more about Ruakinana, what had been your knowledge of Ruakinana? Well, I, I knew, knew the pictures to start off with. I, there's, there's some very haunting pictures of him. And um, I knew of that. I knew that he had been involved in some resistance against the Crown, but one of the problems is, and there's been some very good research done on him in the past, but, and again, I don't want to sort of knock academics, but it, it's been sort of very academic-based, and the problem with that is that I wasn't too concerned with every tiny detail of his life, but I was concerned with getting an impression of what he was about, and the reason why I felt that was more important is that because all the details are in other books, so if you want, you know, the day-by-day chronology of his existence, you can get that elsewhere. But um, one of the things that Hoipa explained that was very important was that traditionally when people were informed about issues, they weren't informed about the, the minute details of dates and times and so on. They were informed about the things that mattered to them. And so I wanted to get a sense that a book could somehow convey what really mattered to people in the area about Ruakinana during his life and up until fairly recently. So that was really the, the approach, and so I, I moved away from the, the conventional history of, of someone to more an impressionistic history. What is it that you think mattered to the community about Ruakinana? Well, more recently, um, very few people in the community have been concerned about him. There, there was a, a, a sharp drop-off in interest in the last 20 or 30 years, and this is one of the, uh, one of the final points actually I, I mentioned to her, I said, look, it's evident to me that the number of people who adhere to his um, and his ideas and philosophies, they're dropping away. They're mainly an older group and they're not being replenished by younger people. And I sort of put that to him as a challenge and he said, well, that's just the way things are. And he said, you know, if it's God's will, then maybe this, this might, the whole movement might disappear. There's nothing right or wrong with that. That's just the way things are. And so he's fairly philosophical about it. Our listeners won't be familiar with what Iharaira is. Yeah. Well, it's an offshoot of Ringatū, which um, was one of the, the major religious sects that appeared at the time, well, a bit earlier, in the end of the 19th century. Iharaira was, um, well, translates as Israelites, and it was this idea that there was a chosen people, and Rokinana said, well, my people are the chosen people, and I'm going to lead them to a promised land. And by my people, he's referring to? Um, well, 
this is it, it changed over time. Initially it was a zone community, but then it changed to include people from other hapu and iwi and eventually anyone who wanted to join. So um, the idea of who as people were emerged over time and it became larger. But the the main thing that was interesting was that um, he had this real ability to convince people to work for him and, and to continue with his community. So some communities and some religious communities might get set up and they last a few years and people's interest wanes. Um, Ur's community started properly at the beginning of the 20th century and went on for almost 30 years. And so this, this incredible charisma, this incredible ability to convince people to work with him. And part of the secret to that was that he kept renewing the movement. So there's a famous picture, in fact, there's a number of famous pictures of this, this great meeting house he built, which was a round meeting house. That's the Hiru Harama. That's right, and it's in two levels, and it looks rather like a beehive. Now, just incidentally, by the way, he made a prophecy in the 1930s. He said that um, one day the government of New Zealand will be housed in a building that looks like a beehive. So that was one of his prophecies that obviously came true. But with that building, he built it, now Hoitha said he, he built it with no nails, so all the, the wood joins had to dovetail. But the building was only around for a couple of years because uh, it was decided, in fact, um, Urakina decided himself, I want to get rid of it, and he dismantled the entire building. And people couldn't understand why. They said, this is a remarkable piece of craftsmanship, if nothing else. It's unique in the country. Why on earth do you want to take it down? And his answer was that, well, it's like everything in our lives, if you want to sort of renew your life, you have to get rid of the things that came before you. So he was constantly taking things apart and recreating them as part of this physical renewal, and he said that spiritually people need to renew themselves in the same way. And that message meant that he could keep refreshing, kept able to, to refresh his community year after year. Because I guess with uh, more recent events, because his community was based within Tuhoi boundaries. That's right and up in Mainupul Hatsu, and where he lies now is in the Matahi Valley, which is uh, heading up into the hills from Waimana. I mean, Waimana is Matahi. Um, So now he is held up as a, what would see, uh, now he's held up as what's a resistance fighter. You know, they, they printed their own money, he had his own banks, yeah. Yes, and that's that's interesting. He's now, and I I suppose every generation has an image of him that that, that suits their needs. So perhaps because of recent events, he's seen as one of the leaders of the the resistance, if you like, or or someone who fought off um, what he termed colonial rule. And there was certainly that part to it. He he was very clear that, um, you know, he he resented the, the fact that the authorities are trying to impinge on his community and basically trying to take it apart. But there's other aspects of him as well, of course. And, and one of the things that that tends to be forgotten is he was one of the greatest tuhunga of, of the region, probably um, in that whole period. Um, I know when he went to Mount Eden Prison, he was imprisoned for a while because um, he was arrested after the, he refused to cooperate with the police at Mangapohatu. And um, he got sent to Mount Eden Prison. And what he would do, he'd walk around... And one evening he did this, he put sticks in the ground in the prison yard. And he got these twigs and he he just put them in the ground. And then he went back the next morning and some of them had fallen over. And he said that, and this this was exercising his talking abilities, he said the the sticks that have fallen over, that's where bodies are buried, bodies of people who are part of our, 
our community, our people. So in other words, that's where Maori buried. And sure enough, um, they dug up these sites and every single place where the stick had fallen over, mm. they dug up someone and uh, there's no other way of knowing it apart from you know, him exercising these particular skills. So he, he, there's all this talking of work he did as well. And the other thing that, again, gets forgotten is he was an astonishing entrepreneur. Um, he started off with no resources at all. He worked hard, saved a bit of money, leased some land. He became so successful on that land that he was able to buy it from the European farmer. He then subdivided some of it, sold the sections off with other parts of it. He organised other people to farm it and he purchased more land. So he was on his way to becoming one of the richest people in the Bay of Plenty. And at the exact point where he could have done that, he abandoned it and decided to work on his religious calling. So he had all these different traits to his personality and it just depends which one you look at, um, which one comes to prominence. And not to mention he married nearly every um, powerful hopper in the in the valleys. That's right, and he was... Um, he married he was, into every, nearly every powerful hopper in the valleys. That's right, and the, the marriages were strategic. And the other thing, of course, to do with it, he, he woman found him very attractive, and part of it was that um, he was very good at playing the role of a leader. So, for example, he when they went to the shops at Taneatua, even when he was just starting out, and he had a bit of a reputation. He'd insist on riding into town only in a white horse. And he would insist that the shopkeeper, he'd come there every week to do his shopping, he'd insist that the shopkeeper set up a special table from outside and make a cup of tea for him because he refused to go inside shops. And so he'd have various women, his wives, and um, later on some of his daughters and some of their sisters and so on. They would accompany him behind him doing all the shopping, but he'd refuse to go inside. So he, he was very good at, at making bits of theatre around him and, Later on, of course, he liked to be driven around in a car so that people could see him being driven around in a, in a car, which was a novelty at the time. So he's very, very aware of how other people saw him, and he cultivated this image of a, of a dynamic, interesting leader. And that, that tended to feed on itself. So the more he cultivated it, the more people tended to follow him. The more they followed him, the more he cultivated the image. And some would say some of those theatrics have um, uh, continued on into the Tuhoiwi. Well, <laughs> it could be, but... But you see, the thing is, it wasn't really just about theatrics for the sake of, of doing it. He, he had a very clear political purpose, or several political purposes in doing this. So it wasn't as though he was doing it just for his own self-image. He was very anxious that he would get enough um, presence, enough publicity, that he could start to achieve the things he wanted to achieve. God, he sounds like, Tommy. No, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> Make sure you keep that. No, no. <laughs> All right, so... um. So we know that Roakinana is the grandfather of Hohepa Kiriopa's wife. Yeah. What was Hohepa's relationship with Roakinana? Um, well, of course, Hohepa's biological father was John Rangiho, and um, it's something he found out only in the last few years of John Rangiho's life. And uh, if you look at pictures of him, you can see the... The resemblance, eh? Very close. Um, so he spent... And Rangiho, in his own right, was just uh, an outstanding individual in, in just about every respect. But um, Hoipa's connection with um, Rua Kenan is an interesting one. And this is really what triggered me to do the book, because when we first met, one of the things he told me is that he, when, when Rua Kenan had died, he said that within the next 10 or 15 years after my death, someone else will rise up who will be the next leader of the movement and possibly be its final leader. And... So it's one of those prophecies for which people look for a fulfilment. And Hoipa believed, 
and a number of people had actually told him that he was the successor. So he was the person who would take over from the Rokinina, who would safeguard the, the sect and perhaps nurture it and make sure that it was um, that it kept going to its fulfilment. But one of the aspects of the prophecy that's interesting is, as the Rokinina said, the person who, who follows me might be the last leader of the movement. So he almost anticipated that it would die out. And again, that's, I suspect, why Huipa was reasonably comfortable with the, the suggestion that the whole Herayah movement perhaps has come to it or is about to come to an end. Paul, did you observe any of the Iharaira practices? Um, no, I wasn't there during the, the particular services and I, I made the decision not to be. And, during um, the 23rd or the Hapati? That's right, yep. And I, I, the reason I, I didn't want to be there is for well, several reasons, but one of them is I didn't want to get into the, to the point where you start, when people are going doing a religious service when you're there just to observe it, it's, it's a sort of intrusion. And if I did go, I would not have made sure would not have included anything in the book. But to be absolutely sure, I made a conscious decision early on that that's one area I didn't want to observe. And again, that goes against the grain because most academics, you try to observe everything, you note everything down. But this is something I felt that it's special for the people involved and there's no way I'm going to sort of violate that by just being there to, to write it down, to put... You know, as part of a book. So that's something I kept separate. But the, the other thing, too, that, that Hoifa commented on, in fact, a few other people commented on, was that although the, some of the services are still practised and some of the rituals are still practised, there is a sense that it's on its way out, that the numbers attending are in decline and so on. So um, he said what's more important is not so much that particular sect, but the sentiment that drives people to it. And so really it's more about trying to capture that sentiment in the first half of the 20th century. So that, that's really what the third book tries to do, is to give an idea of the, the, the excitement and anticipation people felt in the 1910s, 20s and 30s, and then see that it's sort of drained away since then. Paul, have you been changed by the time that you spent with Hohepa and through the writing of these books? Um, that's a very difficult question to ask. The answer would possibly be that I've certainly learnt a lot more, and not so much in the sense of facts and figures, um, but I've learnt a lot more um, from a cultural sense than I think anyone else could have had they not been through this, because um, there's a whole lot of literature, again, about um, culture today, and if you want to learn about any aspect of Maori culture, you can, you can do that. You can read about it, or you can go on um, a marae stay, or you can live in a community or whatever. But the opportunity to spend a lot of time um, and dealing with in-depth issues with someone like Huipa was it's certainly a, a one-off experience. I don't think I'll ever have it again, and very few other people have had it. So from that point of view, I, I learnt a lot. Um, the, on the other hand, though, I don't think it did necessarily change me in the sense that I have a different set of beliefs or anything, but it certainly gave me cause to reflect more on the beliefs that I do have and to perhaps spend a bit more time doing things I normally wouldn't spend time on. So it's, it's been interesting in that respect, but... Uh, from another angle, my personal experience was almost irrelevant to it. The, the main thing is that the, the books give a sense of someone who is very important culturally and they allow people to perhaps learn something from that. And I guess just going back to what you initially said at the beginning of the interview, that a tohuna is someone, you, you know, it's something that actually exists today in this time? 
Well, that's right. Now, that, that, that raises another issue. Uh, do they still exist? And the answer is I'm really not sure. I mean, there, there are one or two other people I know of. Um, but again, they, they're very old. One of them is very old, in fact. He's in his um, early 90s. But um, it's, there's, there's almost the feeling that this is the, the end of the line, that the traditional way in which knowledge was passed on, people like whoever being selected around the age of two and being completely immersed in that whole Tohunga tradition, for his whole adult life, yeah, th- those days are pretty much gone now. People are trying to learn about things, but in a different way. And Huipa had the foresight to realise this, and he said, "Look, he knows. I mean, he he couldn't identify a single person in his own in his own hapuiwi who he could say, I'm going to pass it on in this way.' And that's why he decided to have someone from outside come in, and that was me, to to do a book, because he thought this is the only way that the knowledge will survive. And so. It might be that there might be a new class of Tohunga in the future, who knows, but the traditional class, I think, is pretty much on its way out, and we're probably in the last decade of its existence. Kia ora anō, Paul Moon. Tohunga Journal, Hohi Pakiriopa, Ruekinana e Mainapohatu, the last of the trilogy of books about Hohi Pakiriopa, was published by David Ling Publishing. All the details are at our web address, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. As to are all the Tiahike episodes from the past six weeks. Which comedy duo has a hit television series and a hit record on the music charts? Give up? Well, it's Flight of the Concords. You may remember that because we mentioned it in the intro that we're going to do something on them and during Tiahika. Flight of the Concords. Ara. Brett McKenzie and Jermaine Clement are on tour in the States at the moment, and after many hours of tracking them down, Jermaine gave in. I mean, he talked to Tainero about fame, being Māori, being from the Wairarapa, but mainly Tainero just wanted to talk about their old high school. I was looking for a different story angle. Whatever. At the moment we're um, touring the east coast of the United States. Um, today we're in Minneapolis, and I'm about to do a show in a few hours. At a, at a place called the Orpheum, Orpheum Theatre. And uh, simultaneously, we're trying to write our next season uh, in, be- in between uh, when we have a little time. I know when you've called me up before and I answered the phone and said, I can't do it, that's what I've been doing. Um, working on show ideas and stuff like that. So, what's it like for a Māori boy from the Wairarapa touring around the world, being recognised everywhere? Uh, it's a bit uh, annoying sometimes. <laughs> but it's fine. Uh, a lot of it's fun, but um, you know the the part, the doing the actual show part is is a lot of uh, hard work and long hours. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, uh, I I guess I um, don't really compare it that much to being from Masterton or anything, or, or think of it in relation to that. Well, just on Masterton, um, how much of an impact or a bearing has ha- that had on your career? Uh, I, I think it has. I mean, it's hard to tell because I, you know I've only lived one life, and I can't, I, I can't, I'm distinguishable compared to any others. But um, I, you know, I was bored a lot when I was a teenager. I, I was, a, I, it was a great place to be as a kid. So uh, when you're a kid, if you live in a place like that, and you can, you know, sort of run wild, and then you can, um, that sort of fuels your imagination. And then when you're a teenager, there's nothing to do. So, you know, it makes you apply your imagination, I think. And um, I, gu- I guess 
I got into a pattern of making up things in my head when I was there. You know, I, I don't know if that, um, I don't know how much of that is mastered in, but I feel, I feel like um, I started using my imagination there, I guess. And how much of that is Makoda, the college that you went to? Uh, Makoda, I really love Makoda, um, and I'm sad to hear that it's closing down, right? I, I think that's a, I think what, what's good about Makoda or is good is that um, it sort of has this, it, you don't have things like prefix or anything like that. So there's no, um, there's no sort of authority within the kids themselves. You know, it's sort of like, it, it makes you, um, there's, there's sort of an inequality that they encourage there. And, and I really like that. And I, uh, and I think I, um, I, I've never really been a um, person to respect authority that much, as I'm sure many of the teachers of Makoto will tell you. But um, I, I think that's probably a good, that's a good place for a kid like me, you know, who who, who doesn't like listening to, to uh, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't take it if I had to listen to some prefix. I, I, I just wouldn't, um, I don't think I could handle that sort of environment. Now I remember when I was at Makoda, there was, there was you and Jeremy Birchall. You two yeah. were always up there on the stage performing. Do you catch up with Jeremy that much, or anyone else from the Wairarapa, from Makoda, from Masterton? Yeah, I uh, see quite a few of my friends. Jeremy's in London now, and um, you know he does a lot of theatre stuff still, and doing doing shows and what have you, and um, you know has been making short films and and stuff. Totally off the track. Um, who's your favourite teacher at Makoda? Uh, probably that would be Trevor Morris, maybe. Like Trevor Morris, he was my art teacher. And uh, there was a, an English teacher, John Christensen, who I, I probably didn't like that much at the time, but in retrospect, uh, I appreciate uh, the sort of things he showed us and, and taught us. When I was at school, and uh, they'd show us things like Rocky Horror Picture Show or something like that, I just thought it was weird. But now I realise it's actually pretty genius. I was going to say my favourite was uh, Mrs Cantlin, um, the art teacher. Yeah, yeah, I liked her, yeah. She yeah, I, occasion, I occasionally ran into her in um, Wellington a couple of times. How much, how much of an influence has been Marty had on your career? Do you think? Um, another thing that's hard to say, but um, my upbringing's kind of mainly Marty, and because I was brought up by my mum, who's Marty, and don't really know my, you know, I know my dad, but uh, I don't. I've never met any of his family of our Pākehā side of the family. Um, you know, I got, I got like an email from one the first, the first time the other day. That's the first time I've ever heard from them. They live in Australia. Um, but uh, I don't know. I guess there's a tradition of storytelling and, and um, stuff like that. But my family is um, what you call whakamā. <laughs> my family is very painfully shy and I, in a way I am too in certain environments if I'm just called upon to um, make a speech uh, that's not really my forte I need to think about what I'm doing and get it prepared and then sort of be in my own environment You just mentioned that your, your whanau is whakamā and there are shades of that in you do you feel when you 
you're when you're out on stage, when you're in front of the camera, you kind of come out of yourself. Yeah, and I and I guess that's the reason I sort of wanted to do it in the first place and do shows at school because I was so shy and I thought it was a way to break out of it. But for those of you think, and a lot of people who perform are like that and uh, originally get into it as a way to try and break down their shyness. But I've got to tell them as a piece of advice: if you're shy, you may not want to actually do that because <laughs> you think the attention's just going to be while you're on stage, but it could. You know, now if I go, like when I go out on the street here in Minneapolis, like so many people talk to me, and um, I'm get, I'm used to it now, and it's actually okay. But um, you know, you don't always want that. Sometimes you want to just have a bit of private time for yourself, just to look around the shops. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. There's certain places where I can't be anonymous anymore. Do a lot of people recognise you as being Marty? Um, in in New Zealand. I would say so. I mean, my friends definitely think of me as, as that and my family, but I, I don't know how strangers see me. But I, I don't really I don't really worry about their impressions too much. So, I mean, in, in America, some people know, and some people know what it is, but then there's people who don't even really know what New Zealand is and um, don't have a concept of what Māori is at all, except that a couple of... You know, whale rider and once we're warriors, people sort of know that here. And, um, you know, it's hard to place myself just using those movies. But I, I've, I've spoken Māori to people, to, you know, who've asked, who've asked to hear what it sounds like and they thought I was making it up. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, now, one of the, I remember seeing you in a play one time, The Untold Tales of Maui. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're with uh, Taika, who's gone on to have his own success in, in his own right. Um, do you and Taika ever think you'll get back together and do some uh, some sort of collaboration? Yeah, we're working on a, on um, at least one thing. We're working on a film at the moment, a um, film script. Um, and we want to make that sh- that um, Maui show into a TV show, like... I guess maybe for kids, like, uh, that will be about different Maui stories. Um, something like, do you remember the show Monkey Magic? Monkey? I remember it. Pixie and Trippy Tucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's sort of a funny, fantastical kind of series, and we've had some talks of making the Maui idea into that, so it's kind of educational about the mythology, but also funny. Man, you're busy. Yeah, I don't know if you know, so many ideas don't happen, but um, I, I'd like to do that. That would be really fun. So you mentioned that uh, you're working on the next series. Is that series two or three? Two. Two. So when does um, production begin for series two? Um, it's scheduled for August, yeah, yeah. but we're, um, we've been writing for a couple of months. Has the success taken you by surprise? Uh, in some ways, like the... Um, the album doing well um, surprised us. We, we couldn't believe it when we saw ourselves in the charts. We were expecting to go through pages and pages before we saw our uh, own name, but it was on the you know the first page of the the chart thing. So, will there be a follow-up album? Um, there'll probably be one of songs from the second season, and um, maybe a live thing sometime. But uh, we just we just try and concentrate on a project at a time. 
Where does your tour take you from? Now, you said you're in Minneapolis at the moment. Are you yeah. touring around the, the US? or? Um, yeah, we've we've already done a few, a couple of shows in New York and um, Milwaukee, uh, Michigan. So you uh, went yeah, to where Michigan. they filmed Happy Days, Milwaukee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, that, that's how I think of towns too. Uh, I only recognise them from sitcoms. Like TV Milwaukee was with the yeah, Cunningham's yeah, yeah. and... Yeah, just when you mentioned that, that's automatically what I thought of. Happy days. Yeah, we're going to Chicago. That's married with children. Oh, nice. You know, uh, we're in Minneapolis today. I think maybe Laverne and Shirley is from Minneapolis. <laughs> I'm not sure. You've had a lot of fame lately. Um, have you had a lot of whānau come out of the woodwork? <laughs> uh, yeah, as I said, I got the, uh, the uh, first contact from my Australian relatives ever the other day. But uh, no, not really. Um, but I, but I, uh, when I, um, I remember when when Skits was on, which is this TV show I used to to work on. But before I worked on there, our family was always talking about Huriahi Penny because we were related to him, and it was a big excitement through that one of our family was on this TV show. Even though I don't know if I knew anyone who knew him within the family, but it would just spread. I was going to say you also get uh, media requests from a guy from school. <laughs> Yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Jermaine Clement no Nati Kahununu ki wararapa. Kei te pakarongo mai rā ki te ahika. Since 1979, many a garage party has rocked to the tunes of Long Ago, Dragons and Demons. <laughs> Nā kapa, herbs. Herbs are more widely known for their anthem-like waiata, Slice of Heaven, which had, which was done in collaboration with singer and songwriter Dave Dobbin. And their 1980 release, French Letter, which was written to represent our anti-nuclear stance. That same waiata was also re-released 15 years later in protest of French nuclear testing in our neck of the woods. Tanero caught up with the band at a folk festival in Wainui Amata. When was that, Tanero? Uh, that was... Uh, October 2006 where he spoke to lead singer and guitarist Tama London Kia ora. Welcome to um, our part of the uh, what do you call it? Party Party We heard some plug with um, our friend here, good friend here Charlie Gibson from Queenstown Oh cheer. Privileged to be up here with these uh, dinosaurs. Once upon a time, cause I couldn't cry, dwell on the sadness and thoughts. Of your days, you the soul coming in, coming in from the cold. Comes the lion and the lamb, waiting I up for the love of man. Yeah. And you shall sing, shall sing, and sing with the king. Now I see, raise my voice and say, no heavy heart, 
You change the scale those very streets They'll always be mine Good time, good time Good time And fine Good time, good time And fine God, you got no rivals, just a survivor. And fill the cup lively up, a light hours we love you, know what to do, and identify. It's identity. And we'll always know. What do you mean to you? The yellow, the red, the green And I identify So now I see Raise my voice and say No way me To change the scale Those memories They'll always be mine Good time Good time, good time. The rank is going fine. Good time, good time. The rank is going fine. Good time, good time. The is going fine. I'm my name's Tama London. I'm from Gisborne. My mother is, anyway. My dad's from Motokraka, up north. So, Tama, how did you, um, how were you invited along to this folk festival here in Wainuiamata? We, um, Chaz, Dilworth, and myself, we were playing at a bar in Auckland called Pogue Mahoney's. And Dave Barnes, who's one of the organisers here, he um, saw us there about oh, 18 months ago, yeah. And, and asked us right then and there to come and do the festival. So, and here we are. So, 18 months ago, that's a long time to wait to get you down here? I reckon. Yeah, no hard case, all right, but he didn't forget. <laughs> Is this the first time the band's been to a folk festival? First time for me, anyway. Like, as far as I know, Herbs haven't done any other folk festivals ever. This will be the first for both of us, myself yeah. and Dill. And how has the experience been for well for yourself? Um, it's 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 been an eye opener. Um, like when 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 you're on the like the how, how would you say the, like in the, in the big band stuff like you don't see when you go to festivals you don't see many people walking around with their musical instruments. That's what I liked about that's what I like about this festival here, this folk festival. You see everybody just carrying an instrument of some kind, and that that's um, I've never seen that before. Yes, I have to admit, I'm carrying around a recording device and feeling out of place. This festival really is about the music. It definitely is. There's a lot of good players out there. The accents around here are quite eclectic. There's a few. There's a few of us. There's um, Irish, Scottish, English, Maldives, Americans. 
you name it, they're here. So how has it been for Herb's uh, performing to an audience that isn't your normal audience? Um, it's sort of, it's different, like to see everybody seated in front of you and not actually dancing around it. It's, it's a change for us to, um, to see that. Does that change your performance and style in any way? Not me, personally. The, the bigger the crowd or the the more um, the crowd's into it, it sort of motivates us to perform better as well. Oh, was it the um, the concert that you the performance you gave? And there were a lot of songs that I hadn't heard for years. You played two of my favourites, "Sensitive to a Smile" and "Always on My Mind," um, but I'd never heard them uh, acoustic style, unplugged. Mm. Do you have a preference for either? Um, however it comes, actually. I, I like the band and I like the unplugged thing as well. It's, it's totally different, like, like the unplugged thing. Is if you've got more gaps to fill, there's no drummer, no bass player, no keyboard player, no horns or anything like that. But it's, yeah, you, you have to work a lot harder at it. I, I, I enjoy it, actually. Dilworth and I have been doing it for about the last three years, the unplugged thing all around the place so we'll just see how it goes and um, hopefully we'll hopefully we'll do a Herb's Unplugged album I'm beautiful children come into my life beautiful people young and bright beautiful children longing for life Worldly people take away, take away, take away, take away, take away. You must get inundated with people's, they love hearing certain songs. But do you prefer showing people that, okay, we've also done this in the last year, or the last two years, or the last decade? Um, we try to fit in as much as we can like request-wise and throwing new stuff in here and there. Um, yeah, everybody's needs, I guess. Is the group still travelling as much as they as it once was? Not as much now as, as we used to. There's not, there's not enough, how would you say, money. <laughs> it's always the thing, money. Can't you even beat up my There's been quite a few changes to the band membership over the years. Um, I suppose every person that's come in has added their own flavour. Yeah, they have. We've been through, I don't know how many drummers, how many bass players, because the original drummer, he passed away a couple of, three years ago, and Charlie, our bass player, passed away 11 years ago. So we've, we've sort of had to build the band back up again to get it back to where we were when the other two members were with us. It's taken a while, but we've got there. With their passing, they've taken away something. Yes, they have. Even the past members that are that have left the band for their own personal reasons, even they've, they've left something behind as well. Whip only. Road boy, get a moving, honey, don't you worry. 
Cause I understand Cause even when I'm so far away always with me Well, listen Can't you hear the beat of my heart Well, listen The beat of my heart No, yeah, 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 Oh, listen to the beat of my heart. Is there a chance Aotearoa will ever see the whole Lopu back together? Oh, there's always a chance. Always. You know, I mean, herbs have never split up. A lot of people think that we have, but we haven't, so there's always a chance that the whole band will go back on the road again. Slice of heaven. Herbs member, Tama London. Tera te fitu, kapa kapa ana mai, ko meri meri ano. This phrase is often used in a number of love songs. The English equivalent is see the star twinkling there it's the evening star venus the first time i fully understood what this proverb means was the first time i saw my son and every time after that i've seen him smile ko tanera tutetene no nati motunga ki farikodi nati kahununu ki wairapa te papa o carlos eroera tuta Next week. You may recall the scenes police dragging distressed Komatua from burning buildings, people with arms linked singing, We Shall Not Be Moved. Well, 30 years on, Takaparafo, Bastion Point remembers. And what, what is going on at the Auckland Museum and the de establishment of key Māori positions? Tata ko ngā kaya waiata me ngā kaya rā wikiwiki mihini. Ngā mahi e hoa mā. E te iwi, mauri ora tātou katoa. See you, tāne rau.